Hello, and welcome back to The Present Word. My name is Tim Clifford, and I'm the host of this podcast. On Monday through Friday, this is a scripture meditation podcast where we meditate on and with scripture using the meditation format called Lectio Divina. But on the weekends, we become a study podcast. So that's a bit of what we are today. That said, today is a little bit different than what we did last week. Last week, we introduced John in a study kind of way with some notes about how I approach scripture personally, as well as notes about the genre of gospels and ancient biography as a whole, and then John in an overview, kind of from 5,000 feet, looking at the gospel as a whole. My original plan for this podcast was to go through and break down portions of the gospel over the course of these 10 weeks. But recently, I've thought that we might take a slightly different path and change these, quote, study episodes to something a little bit different. I mentioned in the trailer for this podcast, if you listen to that, that I wanted to bring in different voices, different views and perspectives on scripture, voices that know more than me, but also voices that know differently than me. At the end of the day, I only have one point of view. As much as I can read and interpret the points of view that others bring to the table, it's a whole lot better and a whole lot more fun if we can bring those points of view to the table ourselves. So that is what we have today. This is, rather than a strict study episode, we might call this a Havruta episode. We'll talk a bit about Havruta in the conversation that follows. But essentially, Havruta is a traditional way of studying the Talmud used by rabbis in rabbinic schools the world over. And it can basically be boiled down to studying with a friend. And that's what today's episode is. The conversation we're about to hear is between myself and the Reverend Phil Dickey. Phil and I have known each other for a number of years, and we worked together for a couple years at a church. And in fact, we did a podcast together that is what one of the inspirations for this podcast that you're listening to right now. Phil is an ordained deacon in the United Methodist Church. He's currently the associate pastor of discipleship and digital ministry at White Rock United Methodist Church here in Dallas. And Phil is an all-around cool guy. 
The conversation that we had was had on a platform that Phil does a decent amount of work in. It's called Fireside Chats. It's a new platform that is all about having live conversations where people can join in. Phil and I talk about his approach to scripture, and then we kind of just have a conversation about John. And what I wanted to do in this conversation was understand Phil's viewpoint on John. I wanted to, un- to understand how he approaches the Gospel of John, what he likes and doesn't like about it, and how this Gospel might impact the work that he does and the life that he lives. Now, because we had this conversation on Fireside Chats, I do want to give a couple caveats about what you can expect here. First of all, it's not the same audio quality that you're hearing right now. It's more like a phone call back and forth. It's probably not a big deal to most of the people listening to this podcast, but it's something that I want to point out as a bit of a perfectionist. Two, this is really Phil's platform. He was kind of having me on as a guest. So we go back and forth, and there's a lot to hear from Phil and a decent amount to hear from me. And then three, I'll make a note of this again later, but towards the end, I cut out a question and answer portion that we had with the audience. I also cut out a little bit at the beginning of just introductory words between Phil and myself. But what you'll hear is the meat of our conversation. So, with all of that understood, and without any further ado, allow me to introduce Phil Dickey and myself having a conversation. John, a pastor's point of view. You reached out to me and said, hey, let's talk about the Gospel of John. And I, my initial thought was like, oh, gosh, I don't know if I, I'm ready. I don't know if I'm ready to talk about the Gospel of John. Um, yeah. And part of that's because it's just, it's it's heavy, but it's actually really light at the same time. There's this really interesting kind of dichotomy that, that I find in when I read the Gospel of John. Um, but I, I wanted to just start by saying, like, what, why the Gospel of John? Why was that something that you've taken the time to invest in on your podcast? And why did you want to have that conversation today? Yeah. Uh, so the, the gospel of John has always been, um, like you said, it's heavy and then not at the same time. It's, it's been described as, uh, as shallow enough for a child to play in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So it's, it's this, it's this enigma and it's always been that for me, it's always been this, like, I, you know, on one level, I get everything that's in it. And then on another level, I totally don't. And so yeah. when I started thinking about doing a podcast that was centered around encountering scripture in this way, it was, it was like a natural choice for me. Um, and yeah, and it's, it's probably my favorite gospel. Um, Ooh, that's a bold claim. Luke is up there. Okay. But I think it's I think it's my favorite. Yeah. It it and Luke well, might be tied these days, but and and so for people who don't have a, a great background with the different gospels, just 
I thought it maybe it'd be helpful just to do like a quick iteration. And so we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are known as the Synoptic Gospels. And, and the, you know, there's a lot of varying ideas about which one was first. And, you know, most most scholastic work will say, like most scholars agree that, that these weren't firsthand accounts, right? They weren't people following Jesus around and scribing what was happening, but they actually were texts right. that were written up to 30, 40, 50, probably, actually probably 40, 50, 60 years later. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's an important piece once we get into John here in a minute. Like that's an important piece because – Rather than just doing a historical biography or like firsthand account, like they're very much doing theological work, right? They're they're bringing their theological agenda to the story they're telling of the right. Jesus or the Christ event. And so, you know, typically we have we, we we believe that Mark was the first one written, probably I don't know what did we say, usually the early sixties or something like that, maybe mid sixties. Actually, a little bit later. Mark is usually considered to be written right around seventy. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's right, because uh, of the destruction of the temple. Yep. Right. And then you have Matthew and Luke that were written probably in the next decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, probably John in the 80s or so. The, yeah, the, the mid-90s or so, right? Yeah, and then John reaches reaches its final form in the 90s. I, I This is actually something that I had never really read before, but as I started to dig into the the authorship and history question of John, I found a lot of scholars tend to think that it was it had some sort of original version that we have effectively no way of accessing sure. but some sort of original version that might be much earlier that then was added onto and edited over time uh Which, i mean in makes, like makes drastic, a lot of sense right in, in pretty drastic ways yeah and so it's sort of final form came in the 90s or in yeah in the mid 90s yeah, and I only bring this up because I think it's important that, especially when it comes to biblical scholarship, there there's an important aspect of, or at least like I, I studied with a professor in undergrad who was a part of the Jesus Seminar, and one of the things they gave value to was the earlier something was writ, written, the probability was that it was higher to more accuracy to the historical Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if something was duplicated, then it even gave it more credence because you know it, it, was, it was more popularly circulated at the time. Um, right. The interesting thing about that is, what that does to the gospel of John is it essentially throws it all out as yeah. far as the historical Jesus goes, right? Like um, Matt, Mark gets kind of the, the greatest credence because it's the earliest that we have, but it's also used as source material for Matthew and Luke. And then if you also go to the gospel of Thomas, which didn't make it into the canon, but um, is still a pretty popular, and we know it was popular in the first century, especially, or maybe second century, whatever, like in early Christianity, they were using the gospel of Thomas in, in communities as well and reading it and referencing it. Um, and, and there's just a lot of overlap with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the Gospel of Thomas. And again, Mark being that first one. So there's there's almost like an authority to it, to understanding the historical Jesus. And for the longest time, like that to me made the most sense of like, well, then this is the most valuable gospel. And, you know, that's probably because that's who I study with. And so I just wanted to, like, that's, you become indoctrinated based on who you study with. Sure. The interesting thing is then, uh, similarly, when I was studying all this in undergrad, I was also working for a mission agency down in, in the Mexico-Texas border, and often they would just distribute the gospel of, of John. And finally, mm-hmm. one day I asked the guy who was leading, I was like, why why do we just give out the gospel of John to people in Spanish? And and he, he basically said, well, it's the best way to understand what salvation is in the gospels. And I was like, it, maybe, like, <laughs> it, but I, and honestly, like, at the time I was kind of, you know, like when you're learning a lot of new things and you're a 
20 year old kid or whatever, 19 year old, do you think that you know everything at that point? And you're like, but course, it's not yeah. even really historically accurate. You know, I mean, so like I had <laughs> yeah. this like high horse moment for a little bit, but, but like you said, there's, there's something about John that's shallow enough for a kid, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. So um, I, I can look back on it now and appreciate that they were giving out just the gospel of John at the time I thought, but you're, you, you know, you're like, there's so much happening here that, that isn't, I almost thought that because it wasn't historically f- more factual, then it wasn't as valid. But mm. that's probably the greatest thing that has changed for me over the course of the last 15 years as I've been studying the scriptures is that just because something isn't factual doesn't mean it isn't true. Right. And I think that's the greatest realization I've had in in my scholastic work. And then also not separating from the actual idea of ministry as well as like my own personal like, faith journey. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's definitely one of the biggest things cuz I I was the same way growing up is that like, you know, I I want to know what is historically true and that's what I care the most about and uh in again in undergrad it was like I had professors who started to you know, point out the things that weren't as historically true and point to these scholarly questions and I've come to the realization after seminary especially of the same exact thing this idea that actually scriptures were written not to not so much to teach us exactly what happened on you know August 4th right you know year 30 but more to teach us about God and and about God's relationship to creation and, you know, scriptures are, Ooh, are really just reflections of, of interactions with the divine. <laughs> oh, man. Scriptures are just reflections of the interaction with the divine. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a good word. I like that a lot. Scriptures are reflections of the interaction with the divine. Uh, because what that what that said, oof, that, there's a lot to unpack there. And, and I, I really, I love it and I agree with it. And it took me a long time to realize... Um, especially with the Hebrew scriptures or what we call the old Testament, you know, that I had a hard time wrapping my mind around why there was such a difference and not to go down the full, like, was it Marcion, the Marcion heresy, right? Like Uh there's an old Testament God and there's a new Testament God. And, you know, these are no, like that's, again, it was heresy. And, you know, at some point we could talk about why, what's heresy and what was deemed orthodox and where the power dynamics were in that, but that's not the conversation for today. But I had a hard time reconciling these differences that I saw often um, and, and one, it was pointed out to me that like, well, you're really just highlighting certain aspects and leaving out a whole bunch of other aspects in the Hebrew scriptures, right? That, like, like grace does exist in the Hebrew scriptures. It didn't just originate with the new Testament, but, but also basically a lot of the Hebrew scriptures, they were, they were doing exactly what you said. They were making the best that they could to understand who God was and who they were in relationship to God based on their given context. Right. And so it's not fair to hold them to the same understanding. And, and it's not fair to assume that whenever like Genesis one's being written, they're trying to do like cosmology in the same way that astrophysicists do cosmology. Right. Like right. It's, yeah. it's not the same thing. Like it's not even the same writing genre. And, and so just recognizing that there's a lot of contextual work to do around what the authors were, were grappling with and what the, um, the, the scenario was for them in that given time, but then also um, what their, theological agenda was and how they were coming to understand who God was and what that meant for the community they were in. 
um, is, is really intense work, but it's really important work if you want to do your best to really understand what's, what's happening in the scriptures. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you, you said something a second ago, and I thought, oh, it's a really good transition to get into the Gospel of John. Um, and now I can't even think of what it was. Um, that's okay. We, we don't have to have smooth transitions. We can just jump right into it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I talked about studying with a guy who was in the Jesus Seminar in undergrad. You and I both had um, Dr. Jamie Clark Sauls when we were in seminary. Um, yes. And, and she really is, I, I mean, I don't know where she ranks nationally, but like, to me, she's just a phenomenal Johannine scholar. Yeah. And, and the work that she does and really probably what, what saved my, or maybe just transformed my appreciation for the gospel. John came through this, the, taking a new Testament class with her and getting to study alongside her. And, and um, I, you know, again, I didn't take Greek like you did. So I know you studied Greek with her too. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was it like studying with her and like, what, like what, how did your appreciation and your love for the gospel of John grow and, and how much did Dr. Clark Sauls play a role in that? Oh my gosh. A huge role in that. Uh, yeah. I, and I'm, I'm going to actually get to have some, get to have her on the podcast, uh, here in a couple of weeks. So that's very exciting. Um, that's awesome. But yeah, she, she played a huge role in my, not just in my understanding of John, um, but in my understanding of s- scripture in general, I think like mm. this, my, my approach to scripture uh, has been born out of learning under her. Um, cause I think, and you know, we're going to get into, I'm, I'm going to say some denominational words, but I think like sure. growing up United Methodist, um, scripture was always an important part, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like really, really focused on all the time in my like church upbringing. And then, it always felt like if scripture was the main focus of something that then it was going to be, it it was going to be a literal interpretation of scripture. This idea of scripture needs to be historical truth and that kind of thing. And Dr. Clark souls uh, was one of the first people that I've met who has a very sort of classically Baptist approach to scripture. Um, because she is an unapologetic Baptist. uh, And she is one of the first people who has that very, like scripture is absolutely critically important, but also doesn't need to be absolutely historically true and literal. And it really opened my eyes because I've always felt like scripture was deeply important to me. And I was never able to, sort of get around that hang up uh, from my upbringing. Oh, sorry, I was dealing with a, a crying child for a moment there, so I, I only caught a bit and piece of that, but um, I missed a bit and piece of it, but um, and he's still crying in the background. I apologize. This is the joys of working from home, right? Um, there we go. Now he's gone. <laughs> Okay, so uh, with that in mind, like one of the one of the questions you sent me was like, what what's kind of a favorite passage that you have from the Gospel of John? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I, I gotta tell you, like, I, I didn't pour over it, but I definitely was like laying in bed last night, really thinking through the gospel of John and, and one, it's hard because it's a, it's a, it's a pretty long book, right? Like it's not just a, yep. a, a quick read, if you will. And, and that's a whole nother conversation too, about, you know, so often these would be read. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe the, the, the whole thing straight through, but but they were definitely yeah. almost more performative kind of, right? Like they would, if they were read right. in community, typically it would be read aloud within the community. Um, and, and maybe not the whole thing all at once, but, but we often just kind of segment and chuck them out. And, and in doing that, we often miss a lot of the, the theological undertones that take place and, and really the, the brilliant storytelling that takes place throughout the gospels. And that's not mm. just the gospel of John. It's really all the, um, the books yeah. in the Bible. But, um, but as I thought through it, I thought like it, you know, there's so many obvious ones, right? Like one of the most quoted passages in all scriptures, you know, the whole John three sixteen piece, right? So we have right. that in here, which you can't not at least address a little bit if you're going to talk about the gospel. But, but mm-hmm. to me, I think the, one of the most powerful is just at the very beginning is the prologue, right? John one, one through 18. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, yeah. and it, and I think I love it so much because I, I love the, uh, the creation narratives anyway. And so often when I, I do theological work and like one of the things we had to do in seminary was write what's called a credo, you know, like it's the, like really what you believe and um, it's really tying, making sure that all of your theological beliefs are all again, systematic. Right. And so how does creation fit with salvation and how does it fit with what it means to be human and all, all these different things. And I really, I, I just loved writing so much on the creation piece because I think I, I just value and love creation and, and the ideas behind it. And, and that, that stems from the, the poetic, beautiful, or the, the beauty of the poetic, the pieces in, in Genesis one specifically, I love so much, but what we get in John is kind of this, this tapping back into the Genesis uh, narratives of creation. So where, as in Matthew and Luke, you get the, the genealogies of Jesus, right? Like here's the, the, genealogy of this person who was born at a certain time in a certain place. And this is the lineage from which he comes. And this is why it's important. Mark just totally leaves it out. Right. Mark just jumps right into it, which is very much on on par with what Mark does is he's very emphatic and like, let's just get to business. But John, on the other hand, this is why Mark and John are so different, right? John's like, no, I'm going to wax poetic here for for a while about (laughs) the beauty of creation. This, this Jesus person has a connection to the, the Christ uh, from the very beginning of creation, from the very beginning of time. So we're not even going to talk about like what it was like for him to be born. We're going to talk about how the whole, all of the cosmos was born. Uh, and let's start there. You know, I just love that. Like that's a yeah. bold move to, to say, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. And that's where this again is so complex. And also like, well, I don't know if a kid could read like, in the beginning was the word and the word, you know, like that, it gets, it gets fairly complex because that's, there's a lot going on there. And I would love to hear your, your thoughts on, on the logos, which we'll talk about in a second, but I don't know. There's just something so, so beautiful. And I, I actually went back to um, Eugene Peterson's, the message translation, which, you know, well, one, he's a a phenomenal scholar. He he was Mm -hmm. right. I think he passed away a year or two ago. Um, He was a phenomenal scholar. And so there's just that period but to go through and and do your own translation of the Bible in like really laid back modern language is a, is a huge undertaking. And so scholastically, I know he has takes a lot of his own credence to to you know do his own theological work here. But um, 
I just uh, verse fourteen of his translation mm-hmm. in in chapter one is by far my favorite translation of this. It says the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Oh yeah, yeah. And so yeah. Where, where like the common English Bible says the word became flesh and made his home among us, and I think the NRSV maybe says like dwelled among us, like yeah. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I love that so much because to me, you know, one of the things you you also put in the questions that you wanted to talk about was, do I typically read scripture like more focused on devotion or more focused on study? And -hmm. I'm very much more a study person than a devotion person, but I'm also a, a fairly practical person. And so while I love to study and learn to read scriptures in new lights and understand like, again, like the context, like I was talking about a minute ago, there's just something really powerful about using language like, you know what? The the divine logos from the very beginning of creation moved into the neighborhood. Like God showed up in the neighborhood. And, yeah. and it, it just it, it makes it so tangible. And one of the things I love about the Gospel of John is that it's kind of gritty. You know, like this mm. in the Gospel of John, we have Thomas like wanting to to put his hands in the crucified Je- the, in the in the holes of the crucified Jesus' hands, you know? Like right. there's something very valuable about the enfleshment and the, the the aspect of the body. And I think often the gospel of John gets roped in with almost like Gnosticism and this, this dualism of like the spiritual versus the physical. But, but really when you do a, a, a deep dive on John, you see how valuable the, the human body really is. And I love that so much. I think that's just a really beautiful aspect. And, and that is, is no better exemplified than when God shows up in the neighborhood. And I can just think of like, during the pandemic, we had four different neighbors move and four new neighbors move in. And so I know what that looks like, right? I know what it looks like for somebody new to move into the neighborhood. And, yeah. And what is it? How does that shift my mentality of thinking like, what's it like for God to move into the neighborhood? What is, you know, there's just a, a really good practical theology to go along with that text. So anyway, um, I'm waxing and waning here on on one verse in the first prologue here of John. But what what are your thoughts on what what are some of your favorite pieces of the gospel, John? Yeah, uh, you you stole mine. So mine is oh, I did. <laughs> yeah, mine's mine's for sure. The prologue, especially the opening verses. So like uh, one one through five is probably what I would name as my favorite part. And that's just the where it's in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Um, and continues from there. And that's like the real. That's the part you're talking about. The beauty of creation. Right. And it's like John, Mm -hmm. whereas the other gospels, you know, the furthest they get back is, is Adam. John's like, actually, I'm going to go before that. Uh, And we're going to get right to the very beginning. And um, right from the dawn of, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's this beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful explanation of, uh, or it's, it's like a poetic way to talk about, the really tough theological concept of, you know, of the Trinity and of God becoming incarnate and these sorts of things. And it just sort of like, I mean, it's the only place really in scripture where that's really laid out. Um, But I don't know. It's just always been something that's really spoken to me in like a very pointed and poignant way. Yeah. So again, um, you studied Greek. So the 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 word, right? We have in 
in the first like first two words the word was became flesh mm-hmm. the, in the beginning was the word um oh dog barking um <laughs> talk to us a little bit about the work you've done in in translating and in, in like studying this idea of logos in the greek because it's a complicated yeah, word right to uh, say the least <laughs> yeah yeah so the word logos is pretty pretty complicated um it has a lot of different functions in the new testament and before i say too many things about it i do want to underscore that uh phil you you said a lot of nice things about me and my capabilities with greek um <laughs> i am i am by no means an expert uh at best my skills are just just a beginner level uh so no, no. I, See, I i'm a beginner level because i never even took a course <laughs> on it so uh, right. i just play around on biblehub.com which gives us the greek translations you yeah. actually have hours and hours and hours of studying it granted you i know you don't hold a phd in it or anything like that but i know i mean yeah don't don't undersell yourself my friend you've done the work and like i know i and that doesn't mean like you said doesn't mean you're necessarily an expert but like you've done the work so yeah, um, and I don't, I don't so, mean to put you on the spot and make you have to have like a, a full explanation of the logos because I know there has been a lot of ink spilled over, over this one word in in the scriptures yeah, and but, beyond the scriptures. Yeah, yeah, but there's definitely something worth worth pausing and saying about it. Um, yeah. So, logos uh, is, I guess the the easiest place to start is that usually in high school, at least in in the in the US I feel like in high school we hear about logos ethos and pathos as three different ways to approach writing and we talk about logos as like the logical way to approach writing um it's where we get the word logical hmm. and later in the new testament or further into the new testament not necessarily later chronologically sure. yeah, but yeah. right uh, Paul will use the word logos to talk about the logic of the cross hmm. um and so the word logos has that sort of the idea of logic of uh, like thought and thinking wrapped up in it. But then it also is the Greek word for word and words. And yeah. uh, so it's also the, the same way that we would say like the words on a page. Um, and so it has this idea of, <gasps> of of thinking and communication i think is the is the base understanding that i would i would rest in with the word logos and so it's like when we talk so about you have, yeah you have like like god communicating from the beginning and like speaking existence into being almost Right, right. And then, so you have God communicating from the beginning, but then you talk about, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In the beginning was God and God's communications. And then, and a few verses later, and the word, the communications of God became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Right. And so it's this, in in John, it becomes this idea of the Christ Jesus is not just 
a super special dude, but is mm-hmm. the actual enfleshed communication of God. Yeah, that's that's it's, a good way to put it. The person of Jesus is the enfleshed communication of God that was the Christ of the very... I mean, it, again, like this is where you're like that shallow part, but then all of a sudden you just dove in full deep, right? Like that's right, a really complicated right. statement. Um, did you ever read Richard Rohr's translation of this where he, he calls it the blueprint? Like the in the beginning no. was the blueprint. And, uh, you know, because so often... The reason I love it is because what it does is it kind of not totally dismantles, but basically it says this was the plan all along, right? From the very beginning, this was the blueprint. The logos mm-hmm. was the blueprint from the very beginning, and um, it's it's a fascinating translation because then it, it says it like Jesus isn't coming, or like the Christ isn't becoming manifest in the person of Jesus in order to like fix something, but it was more that like this was the purpose all along. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's back, I mean, you know, Richard Rohr's Franciscan, and it's back to this Franciscan idea that, that God became human in the person of Jesus to change the mind of humanity about God, not change God's mind about humanity. Mm-hmm. And so, like, this was the blueprint from the very beginning. And so it's a, it's a really fascinating translation. I don't, I don't know if it's original to, to Richard Rohr, if it's a, a long Franciscan idea. But, um, again, it's just a really interesting way to look at this first 18 chapters, this prologue of John that kind of sets the stage for the rest of it, right? Because here we are, we're however many minutes in, and we've only talked about like basically the first eighteen verses, yeah. really just like five verses, you know? Like, yeah, and it, right. And it is, it, it's, it's complicated, and, and yet there's, like I said, there's really something beautiful and poetic about it too. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that, and it might be Richard War again, I forget who says it, but like this distinguishing piece between like the the words of Jesus and the words of Christ, and how you know, so often we almost mistakenly think of Jesus Christ as if Christ was Jesus's last name. Yeah. But that here we have this understanding or like, you know, I, well, it was Roar because Roar had a book called the universal Christ where he talks about the fact that like that, that Christ was from the very beginning, but Jesus was somebody who was born at a specific date and time. Mm-hmm. And like, there's a differentiation and this is where it gets a little hairy too, right? Like the whole two in one mentality, but like, there's a differentiation here between the person of Jesus and the universal Christ from the very beginning. And, and John's prologue is really kind of the best place we have to, to do the work to, to differentiate what those two yeah. um, words really mean or what we, what we make of them, or what theology has made of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's almost too much in the prologue of John. <laughs> definitely too much for just a one-time podcast that's for sure yeah for sure okay we're we're at like 30 minutes here i just wanted to say like for those who are joining us here live and in, in on the, the platform and fireside um if you've never done this for you have a little thing above like a little bubble above your head and you can leave reactions on there um and whenever you press it not only can you leave a reaction you can also type then something into the chat if you want to do that you're more than welcome to and in, in a few minutes we'll we'll welcome questions as well just because again we're we're just scratching the surface of john and and kind of giving some high level mentalities with, with occasionally dipping our toe in the deep end here too but um you know john is it, it often is a problem like a um it's a bit problematic from time to time to really wrap our minds around it i remember like it being described as kind of the more esoteric of the gospels. Um, 
I was I was also one time described as esoteric by my boss's boss or my former boss's <laughs> boss. So I guess maybe I should. Uh, John should be my favorite gospel if that's the case. Yeah, but, right. Um, but it is. It's 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 a lot to kind of wade through and and talking about like the idea of Christ and this understanding of of Christologies, right? Each gospel has its own Christology or understanding of, of who Jesus was and the work of Jesus. And if, if we say Mark has the lowest Christology, meaning that like he, the, the, the Jesus that's portrayed is the most human probably of all of the, um, the portrayals in the gospels. Well, then the gospel of John is definitely the highest Christology. And I, I always joke that like, you almost get this sense where, where Jesus is almost like floating around the entire time. Right. And, and it's not entirely true because he definitely experiences human emotions and feelings and suffering and pain and all that kind of stuff too. But like the, the best example I have is whenever the authorities go to arrest Jesus in the garden, um, basically rather than like hiding or shrieking back, he like steps forward and like him stepping mm-hmm. forward, like knocks them all on their back. You know, it's like, I'm the Jesus that you're looking for. And it's like this overwhelming sense. So, um, Talk a little about. Sorry about that. Talk a little bit about Christologies in, <laughs> in the Gospels, or like what you, what you. Yeah, thanks for laughing. I appreciate that because my dog is about to just drive me bonkers. Um, what are your thoughts on the overall sense of Christology in the Gospels? Yeah. Oh man. Um, I think, and this is one of the one of the things that makes John uh so strange and beautiful is john has a lot of uh a lot of like dichotomies when you start to really read into it and and unpack all the statements in it and so john does have arguably the highest christology uh in turn so that that means like jesus as god um and that's it's right there in the prologue that we've already been talking about the word of God, the word is God, um, the communication of God made flesh. But at the same time, uh, Jesus is a, is a guy. He's, he's a dude. He's like hanging out. Um, he gets, they call him the dude. Yeah. They call him the, the, the dude abides after all. Uh, that's right. They, you know, he, he weeps, uh, for the death of his friend, Lazarus. He, um, you know, bleeds and gushes water when he dies on the cross. And then even as, even as the resurrected Jesus, he still has, like we talked about with Thomas, physical, actual holes, supposedly in his, in his physical, actual flesh. And John, so John really walks this line of Jesus is at once Christ and God and, uh, and divine. And also at the same time, human and flesh and, and just a guy. And just, just, just the dude. He's yeah. just the dude. Okay, so let's turn a little bit and look at. So one of the things that you asked me is like from a a pastor's perspective, right? Like, what is it that that you view? Like, how do you view the Gospel of John for the work that you do? So I'm I'm a deacon in the Methodist Church, and so not that I need to bore everybody with the, the polity of the United Methodist Church, but in the Methodist Church, there's there's two um, 
roles of clergy. One of the elders and one of the deacons. And um, they're both clergy, but elders are are often called to well, they are they are called to the life of the church. And typically, they end up being the ones who preach more often and like our senior pastors and like kind of that role. And then sometimes they go on then to be district superintendents and bishops and all that kind of fun stuff. Deacons are more um, more people who are called. What the way I describe it is like we have a foot in the church and a foot in the community, right? And so we have a ministry of like compassion and justice. That's not to say that elders don't do compassion and justice. It's just that we kind of have more of a focus on that work. And so um, when I think about the Gospel of John, some of it is that idea of what I mentioned earlier about the like the enfleshment and the embodiment and like the the really valuing of the human experience because it's easy to get stuck in the theologizing and like the floating of Jesus and this high Christology and the, you know, like almost the, the Gnostic idea that, that there was a separation between um, well, another heresy, right? Like I think the Docetus heresy that like, that he, like there was only an apparition of, of him, of Jesus, like really Christ being human and that he really didn't suffer because how could you have a suffering God? And um, right. But, but there's a call to, recognize that it is Jesus who shows up in the midst of the pain and the suffering. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons you and I both love the gospel of Luke so much is because there is that like liberation theology that God very much is elevating the role of women a whole lot in the gospel of Luke. And there's just a greater equality that we find within the gospel of Luke, but it's in John too. And and you talked a little bit about the editing and like the revisions of the gospel of John, you know, there's been, there's been some, who argue that some of the revisions were actually to suppress the women voice actually more mm-hmm. in the final edition that we have, which is, you know, complicated and there's a lot of work to do on that too. But at the same time, there's still the role that women do play is, is, is elevated, especially at the resurrection. Um, all to say, what, what do I see in the midst of compassion and justice? I think chapter 14 really is the, the quintessential aspect of what I, what I, understand for compassion and justice in John's gospel. Um, and specifically, I think I'm telling you, right. This is the, the real long prayer, right. That, that Jesus gives, is it, is that 14 or 17? Either way in 14, I'm, I'm looking specifically at verse 12 where Jesus says, I assure you that whoever believes in me will do the works I do. Mm-hmm. They will do even greater works in these because I'm going to the father. Right. So there's this sense that, that used to always sit really heavy with me that you have Jesus in kind of his final discourse before he's going to be crucified gives this word that those who believe in the work that I do, those who are going to carry the torch on of, of, of my work here in the world are going to do even greater things than me. And I always thought, what in the world could that even mean? You know, like how, how is it that, that we as just, you know, feeble little humans could do more than the work of Jesus as Christ, who was the, the word from the very beginning. And, and I, I, often kind of just wrote it off for a while. Like, well, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus was being kind, you know, um, and yeah. until I think it was probably in seminary where I realized like, no, like this is, this is the work that we're called to, right. The, we're called to take on the mantle and the same embodiment that Jesus took on is exactly what we are called to do as well. And, and what does that look like? Well, that looks like um, elevating the role of those who are oppressed. And that looks like, um, uh, you know, the gospel of John's where you get the foot washing of the disciples. Like it's this right. humility aspect of leadership, but also this laying down of one's life for, for those that you love kind of thing. And, and back to John three sixteen, right? Like there's this in that John three sixteen, it's that God so loved the world. And it's not just a God so loved my tribe, you know, God so loved 
the people yeah. who live in my neighborhood. Like God showed up in my neighborhood and now God loves my neighborhood, but not yours. Like God mm-hmm. so loved the world. And, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the Greek there is cosmos, right? Like it is the entire entirety of creation. And yeah. I know, I know John's on the call here and I know John's a real big in the paranormal. So like that means even the aliens, right? Like the aliens, we don't even know if they exist or not. But, uh, <laughs> John, maybe John will come up and talk about that. But um, I mean, people used to ask me that, right? If, if aliens exist, does that change your understanding of theology in the Bible? And I was like, no. Because yeah. there's still there's still a sense that like it's all part of of God's good creation, and so um, my role then is to go forth and embody this compassion in Justin and doing, or at least striving to do these greater works that Jesus talks about in chapter fourteen. Mm. So I, I would say that's probably my second favorite, or I lean on the most um, when I go back to the Gospel of John. Yeah. Man, I, I love that, Phil. Uh, I also really like that you pointed out the the women in John. Uh, yeah. That's something that I, until I started doing the research for this project, this podcast specifically, that I had sort of glossed over. And it was always like, if you, if, if people wanted to talk about women in the Gospels, then I turned to Luke. Go to Luke, um, that's right. Yeah, but I mean, in John, in chapter two, you have the the potentially the most joked about uh, miracle that Jesus does, turning water into wine. Mm-hmm. That miracle is kicked off by Jesus's mother, right? right. It, it, so it it says like she comes to him and says, "Hey, you should." They're they're out of wine, and he's like, "Why should I care?" Yeah. And she's she's like a you know kind of in classic mom form it's just like turns to somebody else and is like he's gonna help you out with this um and then in in our meditations and on the present word we just did the uh the story of the samaritan woman at the well in chapter four who you know jesus encounters this woman and there's all these like all these ancient gender politics at play in terms of talking to a woman who is completely alone. And then you learn that she's not just alone, but been divorced and remarried multiple times and all this stuff that makes her like a, a quote, bad woman. Right. And then Jesus says, you know, I'm the living water and all these wonderful things and she goes back and like starts starts a ministry Uh basically and that kind of stuff is just it's just littered throughout the gospel of john um which gets back to this idea of like you have to put on that lens to be able to even see it right like so often we just read through scripture and, and overlook a lot of these these ideas unless you actually are intentionally putting on that lens of like, what, what really is the role of women in this, this context or in this scripture? And uh, one of the things that we're looking to do at, at White Rock, the church I serve at is um, we're going to do a whole series on adjective theology. And so this idea of like feminist theology, well, some people mm-hmm. may scoff at it and be like, why is there a need for feminist theology? And I think it's uh, maybe it's Pete Enns in his podcast, the Bible for normal people basically says, if you don't put an adjective before your your theology, then basically what you're doing is you're embodying the like dead white German theologian orthodox idea of, of theology, 
you just don't know it and you live in the privilege of that space because you've never been like your your understanding of theology has never been oppressed so yeah. feminist theology exists because the role of women has been oppressed or like liberation or like black liberation theology exists because black people have been oppressed and the same for like uh, womanist theology and uh, i mean the list goes on and on and on right like queer theology mm-hmm. All these things exist because there was a need to put on that lens to read scriptures through that lens to better understand, like, what does this mean for me as an oppressed person or as an oppressed people, which, dear God, is that not the, the like, very roots of who we are as a people, or at least who we, had, we claim to be as a people, right? Adopting ourselves into the, the story of the Hebrew people, right? Like, yeah. an oppressed people who, who find liberation from the liberating God, you know? So, I don't know. I... I I love the mentality of that, of just figuring out what adjective we're embracing and, and what are we really reading through? Am I reading through my, my white cisgender, you know, heterosexual lens that like, wah, wah. Mm. who isn't reading yeah. through that lens these days? You know, like, oh, well, there's a whole lot of people who aren't and that's because they aren't white and they aren't heterosexual and they aren't cisgender. You know, like, like there's yeah. an invitation there to experience scripture through the eyes and through the experiences of other people that, um, doesn't discredit the scripture, right? It actually opens the scriptures to a whole new understanding that often um, I would never know because I don't have that lived experience. And I think that's the beautiful part of the the interpretive process is that um, we get to enliven the scriptures in a whole new way for one another because we have different lived experiences. Hmm. So here is where we take a little break for the question and answer period. But I couldn't let Phil get off the hook that easy. I wanted to ask him one more question. So before I let him go, I asked him one final question. Phil, I wanted to ask you one final question. Oh, gosh. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to see if you have, uh, and we, we talked a little bit about uh, like your, your thoughts on scripture in, in general at the beginning, but I want to see if you have, just like a, a piece of advice for encountering scripture well, um, whether that's like in a practice or a mindset, or like if you have a book or resource that you would sh- suggest. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think I've might've mentioned this on a show here before, but, um, and I kind of mentioned it earlier that like, I, I just don't, often read the Bible devotionally anymore. And I, I used to beat myself up for it thinking that I should like, Oh, well I'm a pastor or like, you know, any devoted Christian should read the Bible like devotionally. And and it's not that mm-hmm. I don't ever do it. I just don't regularly do it. And because I can't always take off my, my study hat, right? Like when I start reading the study part plays in and it's actually one of our other professors, uh, Jack Levison was the one who told me one time, like, don't, don't beat yourself up for that. Like there's something holy in the, the process of study. You know, like that. Don't mm-hmm. don't think that it's any less holy than this, like devotional reading. There's there's something very holy in that. Um, but honestly, my favorite way to read and discuss scripture is is basically just like this. And so, um, Tim, you know, and I think actually Elizabeth came on Fireside one time with me. Um, we did a podcast together uh, called Scripture Unscripted for three years, where we would just we would do this. We'd get on, uh, we'd take a passage and we'd read it on the podcast, and then we would. Um, just break down and, and share our experiences, our thoughts, some scholarly aspect of that passage. And like that to me is my the favorite way of of really reading and engaging scripture. And part of it is, I, I think that's somewhat of what the Bible was more intended to be. It was intended to be read in community. Mm. But, but really why I love it so much 
uh, it stems from an experience I had when I, I had a chance, the last class I took in seminary was to study in, in Jerusalem. And we, we did this practice called Havruta, which the word just means friend. And the whole mentality behind it is that when you read scripture with your friend, your friend brings things to light in the scripture that you never would and vice versa. And so I love the process of Havruta and taking a scripture and diving into it with a friend. And, and whether that's somebody who you know has scholarly background as well, or whether that's somebody who just um, has very different experiences in life because, and this is, let me put my Methodist hat back on again, right? Like our, our work of epistemology or how we come to understand what we believe to be true and knowledge stems from scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Hmm. And, and many like Methodists will say like in scripture's primary. And I'm like, okay, sure. If you want to go with that, that's fine. To me, like experience really is almost more primary for me because it's through my experience that I better understand the scriptures. And like, I value the tradition from which the scriptures come, but like really it gets down to like, I read the scriptures through my experience. And that's why the scriptures always are alive and changing for me is because when I read the, the same John text that we read today, if I read it in two weeks, will be different because my experiences will have changed. And so I have been refined. I have been made new in some sort of way. Like it's not the same person coming to the text that was there before. And so if we're engaging scripture together, then like, you know, we, we have the ability to, to enlighten one another as we read the text and pull things out that we'd never see. And also just um, have a deeper understanding. So Havruta is really probably my favorite, um, favorite way to really engage scripture and to, to dive into it. And, and it, and maybe, maybe I shouldn't, you know, downplay it. There's something devotional in that too, probably. It, oh, yeah. it probably is more focused on study, but like there's still a devotional aspect to it. Yeah. And you don't need anything, right? Like you don't need like a, here's five questions. Like, like the, the way I usually go about Havruta is like almost like a Lectio Divina kind of mentality. Like you, you started off with, right? When you read it once, you say, what were the things that stood out to me? And the things that I recognized this time that I've never recognized before. And you read it again and you say like, Oh my gosh, that like totally opened up a whole new mentality for me and I'm reading it through a different lens and a different perspective. And again, kind of adjective theology, right? Like I'm I'm viewing it through the eyes of a woman at this time or viewing it through the eyes of a oppressed person or so there's yeah. just there's just a really I don't know, there's a um, a way of bringing the text to life and when we read it together like that. Yeah. Havruta, H A V R U T A. You can look it up. There's actually a book called A Philosophy of Havruta if you want to get real nerdy about it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So, there you have it. That was my conversation with Phil Dickey. I hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as I enjoyed getting to have this. And I want to say a special thanks to Phil for inviting me on letting me invade his space on Fireside Chats, and for having this conversation with me. As always, if you want to get in touch with me about the podcast at all, you can reach out via email at presentwordpodcast at gmail.com, or you can like us on Facebook and follow us there at The Present Word. Be on the lookout for more episodes like this one on the weekends, but we'll continue with our regularly scheduled meditations coming Monday as we jump into our third week in this strange and beautiful gospel. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you then.
Thank you.